0: Although friend, as promised, here is episode eight. I told you it was so close, you could smell it. I mean, you could smell your digital device, whichever means by which you're listening to this, but not the episode itself, as it seems to be kind of contaminated with DNA mutational viruses. Anyway, checks notes, write a word from our sponsor.
1: Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away.
0: Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So before we get into episode eight, something I want to hearken back to from the last episode and connect it with our larger conversation about what makes a thriller and kind of identify elements and see if we can find them in different thrillers and find that either commonality or just enjoy the stories, Neil. So... In that last episode, particularly in the latter half of episode seven, we have Boy intuitively arriving at uh, an element I feel like I've seen in other thrillers or read or narrated in other thrillers um, of the more espionage variety, right? Um, He intuits how to run a counterintelligence operation, or basically how to shrug off the interrogation. And I love that his tactic is basically like, gush as much as possible, cry a little, and they won't ask you the questions that they probably really wanna know, but they won't because they're afraid of getting him more upset. Uh, And also, I want to mention another element that we find here, and this is also very common in post-apocalyptic narratives, is that they are considered preppers, right? This is a whole other genre, whether it's zombies or an EMP bomb. uh, You, the reader, whether you're eye reading or ear reading, are getting a uh, a lesson. You are prepping yourself in how to handle yourself uh, should such a thing happen to you. So from Realm, you are welcome. You'll be okay. We're all gonna be okay. And here is episode eight, enjoy.
2: Fall is upon us. I've seen autumn red speckling the verdant green leaves in the trees. I've been at FOB far north now for nine weeks. To be precise, 64 days. You bet I'm keeping count. That's what the incarcerated do. Every day behind bars is another day of liberty lost. I'm basically a prisoner here, but I've worked my way into the role of a prison trustee by adopting a modified happy-go-lucky persona. Easy going. Grateful to have a place to call home disinterested by events and civilization at large, unconcerned about the passage of time. Which isn't true, but I'm no longer hooked to a lie detector machine. I'm able to keep up this pretense because I know girl is safe. For now. I've glimpsed her from time to time across the compound in the specimen exercise cage. Sometimes she sees me, but she never reacts. Neither do I. We both know we're being closely tracked by surveillance cameras. They've chopped off her silky chestnut hair, and shaved her head so she looks more like the others in her status group. She's still beautiful. To me. Captured outliers are housed in what is called the zoo by the staff. Modified kennels. Chain-link outdoor cages with sliding metal doors into concrete boxes that are heated in the winter and cooled in the summer. They've been given silver-colored mylar blankets to huddle under when they're outside. Outliers aren't considered human. Technically, they're animals, so humane treatment is required by law. But medical and scientific experimentation is permitted, provided it's humane. In my view, any experimentation on humanoids or animals is not humane. It's a form of torture. I've read books on Nazi doctors. I can imagine that will ultimately happen to girl. I know what an outlier sounds like when it's in pain, in agony, like the outlier who walked into a blazing campfire like Frankenstein's monster years ago. Its dying howls gave me nightmares for months. I hear that same howl sometimes late at night, coming from the direction of the laboratories, where the lights are still on. I don't think the scientists realize how sound carries in a forest valley after dark. Or they don't care. Girl has been deemed status one, meaning she's undergoing reversion. These so-called specimens supposedly aren't experimented on. Rather, their metamorphosis is chronicled and observed. She's part of a study group whose incremental changes are closely noted, photographed, charted. Results dutifully inserted in a graph. Status 1 outliers are valuable research subjects. She's not in immediate danger. That knowledge keeps me sane. For now. I've become an unpaid janitor and a handyman. I start work at 6 in the morning and work until about 4, 7 days a week. A lot of hours, sure, but it's better than being locked in my room or in a cell or in a chain link cage. I think of my assigned tasks as doing chores, like back in the compound. Dr. Roland gave me an mp3 player stockpiled with about a million songs from the last decade, and I keep it in my coveralls pocket, the string-like earbud cords trailing across my chest. Teenagers like music, she told me. So I dance, gyrate, and sing along as I work, which I've learned is what is expected of someone my age. A stereotype. But I'm not listening to the music. The volume is turned as low as it can go. The music player is camouflage. I use it to disguise that I'm eavesdropping on every person I come in contact with, whether soldier or guard, or scientist or support staff, trying to get the lay of the land, gleaning whatever information I can, piecing it all together, a happy idiot grin plastered to my face while singing along or dancing to the music presumably playing in my ears. Patience is the key. Benign idiocy is my cover. Like all personnel, I wear my keycard badge around my neck at all times. Valid ID is critically important at a top-secret facility your ID gives you access to wherever you're authorized to go. For me, my range is pretty limited, though lately I've been given a bit more latitude. As a full human, my situation is much better than the captive outliers, but I can't leave the facility, ever. Technically, I'm still a minor, so I can be held by the state or government for my own protection until I'm an adult. Of course, my reaching adulthood would be a problem for the facility because I've seen too much. No too much. Way too much. So to curtail any discussions of what they should do with me, I formally requested to remain at FOB Far North as a staff handyman. My intention, I wrote convincingly in childlike block printing, is to reside here permanently. I had no interest in venturing into the outside world, into a realm where I've had no previous experience. FOB Far North has become my home. I wish it to remain so. Let them think whatever makes me the least threatening, as long as I can stay near girl. Dr. Rowland told me last week that my application for permanent status is being reviewed, but she believes I will be awarded a janitorial staff position when I turn 18. Apparently there is pay and benefits that come with the job. Medical, dental, and housing. Something called a 401k. I feign gratitude and relief. I think she bought it because it's what she wants to believe. She may be educated, but she's not immune to wishful thinking. I've become the orphaned feral child she's tamed. And besides... She and various interrogators from different alphabet letter agencies aren't done interviewing me about DAW, though they never say so directly. They just ask me to talk about my life with the man who took me in. I never veer off course from the first story I told Dr. Rowland, and I pretend to be glad to repeat it, over and over and over again. I learned, over the course of many interviews, that DAW's birth name is Edward Allen Sanborn. That name, like my own, means nothing to me since I never heard it before. We were always just DAW and BOY. I tell this to anyone who will listen with absolute sincerity. I'm not lying about that. My quarters are a modular box, in a segregated area of the base, segregated in that I'm the only occupant in twenty temporary housing units adjoining the research facility, which is identified as Pod 6. These units had been built to house human evacuees from the contamination zone, but no unaffected humans has emerged from the north since the outbreak. I have been issued clothing, mostly jeans and t-shirts. Socks and underwear, generic brands, even pajamas, and slippers. There's a surveillance camera mounted in the corner of the ceiling. I pretend like I don't notice it anymore. I'm required to be in my quarters from the hours of 9pm to 5am. I'm not locked in, but an alarm will sound if I open my door. In the evening hours, after I've clocked out from my work by scanning my ID in my supervisor's office, I'm allowed to pick up my dinner from the kitchen service window and take it to the dining hall in Pod 6. The dining hall is a single table since I'm the only occupant, but there's a large refrigerator there stocked with drinks, water, fruit juices, sodas, and condiments. I eat alone since there's no one else in residence. After dinner, I'm allowed to spend time in the adjoining rec center. I'm not allowed access to live television, but I can watch movies selected from the collection of DVDs. I won't lie. I enjoy those. I've been systematically watching them all, especially the action-adventure movies. There's a computer connected to the web in the research facility library, but I haven't been granted access to that part of the grounds. Not yet. I've asked to be allowed to go into the library, but so far my request has been denied. Dr. Roland wants me to be able to read, though. If I want to order a book, I fill out a request slip, and the book is delivered to me along with my dinner within a couple days. I can obtain three books at a time, and I'm sure my choices are monitored. That's why I only check out Boys Adventure Tales, all books I read years ago or else classic grand adventure stories that won't raise an eyebrow. Like Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. Camouflage. I'm just a simple kid with simple predictable tastes. What I want and don't have is access to the internet. I want to know what happened at the time of the change. How it all played out. What happened after Da fled north? How many people were infected? How many died? For all I know, FOB Far North is the last outpost of American civilization, though I now suspect otherwise. While emptying the outdoor trash can several weeks back, I spotted a soldier sitting on a bench during his break. He was chuckling while reading a handwritten letter. I glanced at the envelope as I shuffled by. The envelope wasn't old. The postage stamp had been cancelled. Probably by a machine. Somebody had written that letter and posted it. Somebody most likely from outside of FOB Far North. Somebody in civilization at large. What that looks like in the aftermath of the change, I have no idea. I know not to ask questions. Showing any sign of curiosity will curtail my limited freedom. And I need what freedom I have in order to get the hell out of here.
0: Hello friend, this is Neil Helliger's host of Adrenaline Realms Thriller channel, and I'm here to talk to you a little bit more about the Greenlight app. And this message is, of course, sponsored by Greenlight, but I was using, our family was using the Greenlight app uh, even before the first ad in a wonderful, thrilling cosmic coincidence, right? See what I did there? So again, to catch you up, Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. Basically, the way it works is that parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their kids spending and saving. And you can see exactly how much money they have in their account. And there's different ways to give them money. What we've been doing is uh, like a weekly allowance, a certain amount that goes into his account every week. So in order to further the conversation about money and about earning, uh, we're using Greenlight as a kind of a foundation for that conversation. Uh, in other words, instead of just the allowance he gets for a certain base things that he's expected to do around the house. Uh, We are also adding the chore feature, which is certain one-time payments for certain one-time jobs. For example, in our house, we're trying to encourage our son to start walking the dog more. He's old enough for it, he's responsible enough for it, and he's done it enough that he knows what to do. So he can really see that for all those extra times that he steps up and does the dog walk, he gets rewarded for that job well done. And this is the conversation. In life, when you work a little extra harder, you get a little extra compensation, and you can either save that up or spend it how you like. And we're not alone in this. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on green light. It's a very easy and very convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate life together. So sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash adrenaline. That's greenlight.com slash adrenaline to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash adrenaline. Slash, 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 slash. So thrilling, right? Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Wine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.
2: Ten weeks. Seventy days. My apparent lack of curiosity has paid off. Both soldiers and scientists alike have relaxed their guard around me, As an eager-to-be-of-service unpaid janitor and handyman, I have achieved value. I run errands for anyone who asks. I fix personal objects, like necklace clasps or holster buckles. I don't represent a threat. I'm neither contagious nor prone to talking back. I'm mild-mannered and unassuming. I've never once, since that first day, asked about girl. I exhibit zero curiosity. A kid who walks around with buds in his ears, lost in music. I've melted into the background like the rest of the janitorial staff. I'm patient, because when I sort the trash at the recycling bins, if I stand in a certain way, I can glimpse girl in her kennel. Usually she's seated against the concrete wall, her knees drawn up to her chest. Cold. Miserable. But alive. The sight of her in a cage infuriates me, but I turn my rage into purpose. It galvanizes me. The more I can learn, the better equipped I am. Knowledge can be as significant a weapon as a bow or a gun. Daw taught me that. Only one thing I saw shook me up enough so that my mask slipped for a second, but I don't think anyone saw. I'd passed a room where the light duty officers were stationed when they had an injury, like a sprained ankle, or maybe were recovering from a non-contagious minor illness. I'd assumed it was an office like any other, but this day when I walked by, pushing my wheelie trash can, I saw that the light-duty soldier had propped the door open with a folded piece of paper. That was against regulation, but it gave me the opportunity to take a peek inside. The soldier was female, in uniform. Her dark hair scraped back so tight across her skull it tugged her eyebrows up. She had a cast on her right wrist. In front of her was a long table, not a desk. The table was piled high with old phone books. She was using a desk telephone, the kind that resembled the old rotary dial phones, but which had a raised button keypad. It was connected to a speakerphone, so I could hear not only the dial tone, but also the number tones as she dialed, then the ringing. She counted twenty rings, then hung up and went on to the next number, and the next, and the next. I thought of Da in the ski lodge futilely waiting for the phone to ring. He was right. There was another human out there, probably wearing a uniform while seated in the light duty room in front of a desk telephone. I pictured Da as I remember him best. A hale and hardy mountain man with an iron grey ponytail and a white beard. Strong tanned hands with corded veins. Wearing a red plaid jacket and old hiking boots. Rifle in hand. Hello? 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 He says in my memory, pitched higher at the end, as if asking a question, hope burning in his eyes. Something cracks in my chest. Maybe the thin layer of ice that has coated my heart of late. The soldier looks up and shoots me a warning look. I grin an awkward hello as I stroll off. Sometimes memories hit you like a bat in the solar plexus. I took a couple of deep breaths, trying to let the feeling pass and the memory fade. By sheer force of will, I dragged myself back into the here and now. One afternoon, I managed to pilfer a facilities map printout from a surveillance station. In the last weeks, I've gleaned a lot. Overheard a lot. Here's what I know. Nearly 800,000 people ceased to exist during the outbreak that came about as a result of the accident Da had described. Then thousands of humans mutated within hours as the contagion spread inland from the northeast seaboard. Mandatory evacuation of the entire area was ordered. The ground zero state was declared a disaster zone. The military was called in. Shoot to kill, as Da predicted was the order. That's how most died. Not from the mutation but from being shot to death by soldiers who saw only outliers, not former human beings. Relatives never learned what happened to their loved ones, other than that they died. Those who witnessed the mutations but weren't infected themselves were financially compensated by a government agency when they signed a confidentiality agreement not to talk to the press or media. Most signed. Those who refused disappeared. In the tabloid press, conspiracy theories abounded. Sometimes conspiracies aren't just theories. The outliers, the press reported had sprung from an extraterrestrial virus brought back inadvertently from an unmanned exploratory mission to Mars. The return rocket had broken up as it re-entered Earth's atmosphere, and the resultant debris field in the frigid northeast became ground zero for a dormant but lethal cellular mutating virus that had been released into the atmosphere. Pure fiction. Not even close to the truth. Still, imaginative. Jules Verne would have been impressed. The upside. No legal liability for the true malefactor. No Exxon oil spill-style settlements, insurance companies claimed the resulting cataclysmic plague to be an act of God, presuming, of course, that God resides over Mars. Many people were infected, the press duly reported, but the contagion was contained to a specific geographic area. At least that much was true. No reason for the country at large to panic, even if nearly a million people disappeared from the face of the earth virtually overnight. No mention of a well-meaning raid by environmental activists gone wrong. No mention of a biological weapon. No hint of a man-made plague. After 30 days, an executive branch press release was distributed globally. Taking a page from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, it proclaimed that the extraterrestrial virus had been completely eradicated, but that the original contamination zone would remain off-limits by executive orders for 50 years. They failed to mention that the outliers still existed. This wasn't all I learned. Soldiers tell each other war stories when they think they're not overheard. It passes the time. I absorb everything I hear on the sly. The contamination zone was contained within days. It took nearly three weeks for the pandemic to be neutralized in geographical areas to the south of Ground Zero. The contagion was effectively stopped in its tracks. To the south, civilization, humans. To the north, the infected, outliers. And, unbeknownst to anyone, Da and me. The military wanted to raise the entire infected area to the ground using everything short of nuclear bombs, killing every living thing. The containment was ultimately ordered, not extermination. The scientists were eager to study the mutants. The powers that be realized there might be significant profits stemming from the research. The scientists won out. Only those with top-secret authorization at FOB Far North know the truth. Mars had nothing to do with the outbreak. The red planet had been a convenient scapegoat. I only know this because... Like I said, I listened intently every chance I could, and put all the pieces together. But I've recently come to realize that no one here cares what I overhear. They all know I'll be euthanized rather than set free. So what does it matter what I overhear? I'll never have the opportunity to repeat what I've heard. Ever. Now I'm under no illusions about my fate. I won't be invited to join the janitorial staff when I turn 18, and there will be no 401k with my name on it. That's simply the placation narrative. Dr. Rowland has put forth to keep me malleable. That keeps me willing to answer the questions of any authority seeking answers I might be able to provide. Without Girl, without knowing she's near, I might have given up or become combative. But because of the proximity of Girl, I continue to gather information with the frenetic energy of a squirrel hiding acorns for the upcoming winter months. About this forward operating base, FOB far north abuts the fence that stretches for miles and miles, effectively cutting off all access to land to the north. No humans are allowed beyond the border fence, except the biosuited soldiers who secure incoming outliers. And that's only for a distance not to exceed 50 yards. The entire electrified fence line is patrolled by soldiers and or drones and surveillance cameras and motion detectors. When an outlier is detected, an armed response unit in full biohazard gear is deployed to subdue it. Then they exfiltrate, retreating within minutes behind the perimeter fence. That's exactly how it happened with Girl and me. The sky above the contamination zone is a no-fly zone, All commercial and military air traffic has been permanently diverted. No satellites are positioned overhead. The press and the public have been told that only wildlife lives within the zone, like Chernobyl. The scientists are confident that all specimens at large will eventually migrate to them. Outliers are drawn to the warmth. If they venture anywhere, it will be to the south. After the 50 years are up, when the quarantine period is over, scientists in full biohazard gear will be allowed into the contamination zone, but only under very restricted circumstances. They have yet to figure out the full virulence or dormancy factors of the contagion. Until then, all research is conducted at the perimeter, at the top secret laboratories where I currently reside. According to a schematic I pilfered, FOB Far North stretches not only along the fence line, but to the south for miles, millions of acres in total. All seized through eminent domain during the disaster. There are five zones in total at the facility. The lower the number, the greater access restriction. The fence line is the most restricted area, it's called Red Zone 1. This zone abuts the giant fence separating the facility from the contamination zone. The electrified fence stretches the entire length, even across rugged terrain. On the map it looks like a border with a moat. The entire fence is surveilled with high-tech monitoring equipment that can detect movement, whether of ectotherms or endotherms. Anti-drone missiles are mounted the length of the fence, to keep out unauthorized viewers, presumably the curious. And the media, especially the conspiracy theorists. All along the fence are posted signs. All humans who work in Red Zone 1 are required to wear protective clothing and breathing apparatus. Only top clearance soldiers and scientists are allowed near the fence. They are the only ones who know about the existence of the outliers in the open land to the north. Red Zone 2 is the research wing, where all captured outliers are housed, including Girl. The scientists have their laboratories and offices there, and their quarters too since most live on site either permanently or for six months at a time. I'm housed in Red Zone 2 as well. I just learned that there's a crematorium here. The smoke smells vaguely chemical, like bleach. I've seen the smokestacks for weeks now, but I only just realized what it's used for. Biological remains. Of outliers who've died in custody. From natural causes or otherwise. They're not human after all, is what one of the soldiers said to me while on a coffee break. Fucking mutants. We ought to fry them all." I just smiled, head-bobbing in mindless agreement. Blue Zone 3 consists of military barracks, tactical gear, munitions and weaponry are stored there too, tanks, RPGs, enough artillery for a full-scale hot war. Blue Zone 4 is a complete town, like a boomtown that suddenly came into being all at once during the gold rush. The facility staff lives there. There's a grocery store, a school, a park, a bank. Several thousand people live on the grounds. Families and support staff are not privy to what goes on in the red zones, and they are under orders not to speculate if they want to be paid or protect their family pensions. Green Zone 5 is basically a huge delivery bay and incinerator. At the border of Green Zone 5 is another massive fence with military guards and electronic gates. The entire facility has been designed so that no captured outlier gets out, and so that no unauthorized persons get in. With careful planning and a lot of luck, The weakness of this design assumption is something I can exploit.
0: Okay, so here's another solid prepper tip via boy. Um, If you ever find yourself in a zombie apocalypse that was not as widespread as you initially thought, but still is pretty bad, and that your guardian turns out to be a really awful person, but you have conflicted feelings about it, and you end up being sort of captured, but sort of allowed to kind of have your own way about the place, um, the tip is be like super boring, super predictable, like be a janitor or something, you know, necessary, but um, unremarkable, and just listen to your music and kind of dance around. And then just plan, and your moment will come, my friend. The other part I loved about this episode is what they told everyone about where the virus came from. Not that it came from a lab somewhere and they just kind of messed up about containing it, which is, you know, unlikely and terrible, but plausible, maybe compared to, by the way, there is uh, life out there in the solar system, in the galaxy, in the universe. Um, It's viral in nature and we accidentally dropped it on everyone. It's a virus from Mars, people. And then everyone's like, oh yeah, wow, rough. I'm so sorry for you guys. Do you need any help? Can we help you with that? And not that Casey Wells needs my help. Uh, uh, in terms of maybe writing, let's say, a season two for Outliers. But I want to see in season two, the actual virus from Mars does arrive on Earth in a massive act of hubris against humanity. And uh, and then the those those viral people fight against the Outliers, and it's it's just insanity. Um, you know, just a thought. Don't take it. <laughs> don't take it. Do take episode nine, which is—it's already there. Just go listen to it right now. I'm Neil Helligers. This is Adrenaline on Realm, and I'm going to be there listening to it with you. I promise. Take care.
1: You're listening to Adrenaline Outliers, narrated by Rory Culkin. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
0: Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black.
2: I'm torn by my feelings for two women.
0: Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. And how he rose
2: from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Outliers is executive produced by Dave Beasley and narrated by Rory Culkin. Created by Cassandra Wells and Dave Beasley. Based on the novella Outliers by Cassandra Wells. Produced for Realm by Alexis Latshaw and Haley Wagreich. Additional sound design and editing by Rory O'Shea. Cover art by Kendall Thomas and Michal Krasnopolsky. Adrenaline is produced by Mary Osadolahi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Neil Helligers. Audio editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Marcus Bagala. Cover art by Kindle Thomas. Find more shows like Adrenaline by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.